glorious as our Lord with a beautiful sunshine. I wearied of every Lord's Day being a rainy one. <laughs> it seems like it has been for weekend after weekend. Genesis 40. <clears throat> Follow along, I was just reading first few verses of this chapter. And it came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against the two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, and they continued a season in ward. Father, we're thankful for, again, our approach to the life of Joseph as we uh, see a young man being used mightily in his day. So we pray that we will be encouraged to take upon ourselves by the gift of the Holy Spirit and by your grace uh, some of these attributes that we find in Joseph for our day. We ask, Father, that you would quiet our hearts and allow your spirit to, to teach us that which we have to learn. Thankful for the joy that we have in Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our text begins with, and came to pass. I don't know if you'd noticed in chapters 39 uh, and down here, if you'd read through chapter 40, that's used 10 times. Remember, we got Moses writing these things up, and, and there were no uh, calendars or, or little checks to be, when did this occur, what day of the month, and so forth and so on. So it means sometime later. In other words, we see events take place, and sometimes later, sometimes later. And it didn't necessarily mean that there wasn't a need to have a reference to the date and time, but uh, it ends up that's what he used. Well, sometime after Potiphar had tossed Joseph into prison for the, uh, the false accusation of Mrs. P, uh, into the jail he went, two others joined Joseph uh, in that prison. Let me read to the, at the end of chapter 39 to give again a picture of this situation of the jail, of the, of the prison and what was going on. Um, 39... 21, but the Lord was with Joseph, again, in prison, and showed him mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. In other words, nothing could be done without Joseph's command. He's in charge, you know. The keeper of the prison... Look not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Uh, we don't know how long Joseph was locked up before these new responsibilities, we could say, were given. There's no indication, again, passage of time, but he had been in there for a little bit. If you notice in here in these uh, chapter 39 and chapter 40, the, the title, Captain of the Guard, Keeper of the Prison. Who was that? 
is like a Jeopardy question, you know. Who was it? Who was the keeper of the prison? Who was the captain of the guard? You have to think back a little week. Potiphar. Potiphar. Interesting. And all of a sudden, here's a man, and I, and I perceive out of this, that uh, Potiphar looked upon his wife's accusation with some skepticism. Maybe she was a lady who was floating around considerably, but she, could, she couldn't do anything about it. The charges were made. No evidence was to show anything else but that. So uh, he ends up putting uh, Joseph in prison. Uh, nevertheless, however, right or wrong, in the fullness of time, God moves Joseph to a position, to a place in this prison. The blessing was on him, and he received, in essence, Promotion after promotion. Same occurred in Potiphar's house. Potiphar says, I know this guy. I know what he's able to do, what he's capable of doing. And it's possible that when Joseph left the house, (laughs) Potiphar's house got into a mess again, you know? His fields weren't quite producing as they ought to produce. But now he sees him in the jail, and that's what happens. Now the residents, new ones that are brought in, first he mentions is the chief butler. This isn't somebody whose name is Jeeves, and he comes in, may I help you, sir? If you remember the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a cup-bearer, and that's the title for uh, uh, this particular man here. He was in charge of the wine, the tasting, the growing, the the preparation, and so forth and so on. A very important thing, because when it comes to drinks, uh, you're not going to drink from the Nile River, and they did have a lot of fruit juice, but wine was probably the, the one easiest done. So he was in charge of that. And then the next is the chief baker. And this one is a little more easy to understand. Food prep. Food prep. So the drinking and, uh, and the preparation of the food, these men were tossed into prison. Some have suggested, and I think rightly so, that there was an attempt on Pharaoh's life assassination through drinks or food. And it didn't necessarily mean that these men in particular were charged uh, for doing it, but anybody under them, who's, who gets in trouble, uh, it's the person on top. He says, you should have known better. You, know? you were responsible because of this. Um, and, and so it, it provides them with kind of a, a, a poor situation to be in. Uh, the text says that Pharaoh was wroth. He was really upset. So into prison they go. Into prison they go. Let me ask you, why were these arrested and tossed into prison? Why were these two men arrested and tossed into prison? Was it because the baker served cookies and donuts knowing that Pharaoh was gluten-free? Hmm? Or the, the cupbearer, maybe that he was using grape juice concentrate instead of the real stuff. Or maybe, maybe they did make an assassination attempt. None of them. None of them. These men were thrown into prison for the simple purpose to see Joseph, to meet Joseph. God's hand put it all into place, and all into practice, and the timing and the places for everything to take place in order that dreams might be presented, dreams revealed, release of Joseph, 
dreams presented unto Pharaoh, dreams revealed by Joseph to Pharaoh, and so on and so on. We see the marvelous hand of God working beyond the circumstances that these men might have thought was the reason for their particular situation. Truth be told, they were instruments of the Lord. Again, this isn't the first time we've seen Joseph's life in a position where God was using whomsoever he will to accomplish his purpose. We saw it in the very beginning with his brothers, with the, the, the Ishmaelites and the captivity and their taking him to Egypt. We saw it in the, the life of Potiphar with Mrs. P, uh, using Joseph for their own selfish gains. They were using them, not thinking of any greater cause than what was initially presented unto them. God, in his sovereignty, was raising up, though, and taking down. He was opening doors and he was closing doors. And he was using situations that these people were found in, although they looked at upon it and says, well, we're doing it for ourselves. We're wanting to use Joseph in order that we can get something out of this. But it wasn't. It was God's hand all along. Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart deviseth his way. Uh, scripture often used heart with the idea of mind. A man's mind, his man's heart, his intents and purposes, he makes the devising of it. He's thinking, scheming, planning. But the rest of the verse says, but the Lord directeth his steps. Here in these situations, all the way from where we saw Joseph at the age of 17, all of these situations occurred with brothers or Ishmaelites or Potiphar or Mrs. P or Pharaoh or anybody else along the way, devising, planning, scheming, operating, thinking that they have things under control. This is the way it'll go. This is the direction it will take. And all along, it was Jehovah who was ordering each step of their way. Solomon writes in 21.1 in Proverbs, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. The king, the president, the prime minister, any official, he says, his heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the river, and you've seen rivers, if you've ever flown over the country, and you've seen a river and twists and turns and back and forth, and it seems like it does whatever it wants. And, and, and Solomon says, God takes the, the heart of leadership like that, and he puts it in a place where he knows best. Well, instead of the king's heart, why not we put in here the brothers' hearts? Joseph's brothers. Their hearts were in the hand of the Lord, and God turned it whatsoever way he desired to do it. Potiphar's heart. Pharaoh's heart. But could not God have done it another way? From Joseph's point of view, could not God have brought Joseph to Egypt at a certain time, met with Pharaoh, given some good counsel? Hey, we've got to store up grains here. And Pharaoh would have said, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know, Without all of the suffering, without all of the hardship, without all of the pains, sure, he could have done it. But that isn't what God had chosen to do. Easier roads are not always his choice. We often ask the same thing. 
Why, Lord? Why me? Why now? Life would have been so much easier had this not happened. Life would have been so much easier if this had occurred. We, we, we question the pattern of life and the direction that things go. We or I had it all planned out. And then fill in the blank. You know, got it all set up. You know. um, president's coming up to do his State of the Union address. And now... He's going to present something, as President said, every single year. And people will go, yay, or they'll just sit there, and people will turn off their TV or yell at him or whatever. The thing is, those are plans. It's his intent, good or bad, profitable or not. But in the end, he's not operating it. It's God's hand who's providing such in the direction that he would go. Why couldn't I get into that school. Why didn't I get that job? That's not how I planned it. There was an illness, an accident, there was a loss, there was a break-in, there was a break-up. There was something that occurred, and all of a sudden my whole plans in life just went askew. And we become upset with him. Let me read a few stanzas from a poem by William Cooper, written in 1774. The poem is entitled, Light Shining Out of Darkness. George Ella writes of Cooper. Said he was educated at Westminster, studied law at the Middle and Inner Temples in England. He spent several years writing ballads, dancing all through the night, sleeping all morning, going hunting the rest of the day. After a period of intense nervous disorder, which were, in essence, nervous breakdowns, which are obviously an inherited complaint, Cooper came to know the Lord in a mental asylum. This is in the 1770s. Can you imagine what they were like? He came to know the Lord. He was recuperating from his illness when he met John Newton, the slave trader John Newton. Uh, Cooper and Newton became fast friends. When it was time for him to be released from the asylum, John Newton and his wife took him into their home. Um, Although he struggled with depression, some very severe bouts apparently occurred in the month of January. And I can imagine January in the 1700s in England is not the best of places, and I could be depressed there also. But nonetheless, it occurred. Newton encouraged him to express his heart in his poetry, which was a witness to the sovereign hand of God. In his life. It goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big and mercy filled with mercy shall break upon blessings of your head. Judge not the Lord's by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning frowning providence hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. 
God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In the hymn books, it's God moves in mysterious ways. That's the hymn that we sing. Um, Cooper could not have understood or written of the relationship of, of himself and the struggles he had in life. He never could have understood the mercy and the grace and the love of God had it not been through the trials that he had gone through. He couldn't have experienced such things and then walked away with the hand of God not guiding him. Unless God guides our lives, how will we ever understand the mercy and the love that God has for us? Sometimes we say, why now? Why this? Why couldn't it be like somebody else? And yet Cooper and Joseph could not understand the greatness of the God that they live for, that they were redeemed by, because until he had opened their particular hearts and eyes to his truths. Back to our text. Start at verse 5, Genesis 40. And they dreamed a dream, both of them, this is the baker and the butler, each man his dream in one night, each man according to the interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in prison. Joseph came in unto them in the morning, looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of the Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We've dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. I think there was considerable interchange between Joseph and prisoners, all of the prisoners. I think he's a man in charge, and his personality brings it out that I think Joseph is a man. How you doing, guys? You know, you go around and see. You're all taken care of, you know, uh, however the, the, the culture of the time, I think Joseph understood it all. I convinced that he knew his prisoners, and they knew Joseph. As the text goes, the chief butler, or the cupbearer, dreamed a dream. And he tells Joseph about it. He says, I have this dream. I have a grapevine. It's got three branches. I press the grapes into Pharaoh's cup, and I give it to Pharaoh. And I think this is something that he probably was very familiar with. Part of his duties, whether they were orchestrated by himself or whether he had other people doing it, go to the fields that we've planted grapes, bring them in, squeeze them up, give them to Pharaoh, bada bing, bada bing, and that's you know, quite a simple task. Joseph says, and again, he doesn't stop, and sometimes I would think, well, maybe he prayed and asked God for help. I think God had given him the understanding, the ability, and he gave God the credit to interpret these dreams, and he says, well, this is rather simple. Three branches represent three days. After three days, Pharaoh's going to come and restore you back to your original position as the cupbearer, and you would be released from prison and get your job back. Probably, it seems, that because this was Pharaoh's birthday, it was probably a year, at least, that he'd been in prison. Don't think it was the greatest accommodations, and don't think they were the greatest of situations, and I think his heart was elated. No execution, I'm going to get released, and I'm going to go back to the job that I surely enjoyed doing. Chief Baker comes along, and no doubt he's encouraged by 
the interpretation of the butler. He sees some similarities, you know, task jobs, threes, you know. So Joseph says to him, tell me what's going on. He says, I carried three white baskets. And literally, it means baskets that are full of holes. More, more precisely, I think they're wicker baskets, something that they would have made to carry baked goods in. He says, the top of these three baskets, various baked goods, and I give them unto Pharaoh, which the birds ate. It's likely today that there are a number of preachers who don't bother telling the whole truth for fear of offending the ears of his audience. This was not the case of Joseph. He knew the situation. He knew that lives were at stake. Nonetheless, he goes ahead and he tells the truth. He says, brother, three days represent, or three baskets represent three days. Three days pass by, Pharaoh's going to execute you, and the birds are going to eat you up. E, can you imagine that, hearing that? What a horrible way to die. What a horrible way to be remembered. The situation he faces. <laughs> to us, these kind of dreams don't necessarily sound too troubling. I don't know if any of you had anything about birds eating you up later on, but I think if we have such dreams, in the words of Ebenezer Scrooge, maybe an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of undone potato, you know. But we think nothing of it. We say, oh, wow, that was a weird one. If somebody will listen, we go ahead and tell them our dream. But it's nothing that was of great consequence. But in the age and in the culture of the time in which Joseph lived, and all through the Middle East, dreams were important. They took these dreams very seriously. The import of those things into their lives, this is most important. The Bible even tells us that God spoke to the pagans, and he spoke to his own people in dreams. Even Joseph's ancestors came to understand truths. Well, sure enough, three days go by, Pharaoh's birthday, the cupbearer is restored. Baker has his head removed. The rest of it is tacked up on a tree or hung up on a tree. The birds come in and they have a feast. Such it is is. But let me go back to verses 6 and 7. I want to uncover another little layer of Joseph's character. And Joseph came in unto them in the morning... And he looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And, and he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of the Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look you so sad today? <laughs> you know, one sense, it's kind of a stupid question. Where were they? Prison. <laughs> you know, this is not happy days are here again. I've been in prison probably for a year, you know, and yippee! No, they understood that there was some situation. Joseph, in looking deeper into this text, I think he has a charge not only for their care, he's watching over the prisoners, all of their welfare and their situations, but he looks down and he sees them depressed and dejected, something more than the usual prison face, something more that was an everyday occurrence, something special. Probably, indeed, that the Lord had touched him to read into their hearts. They were wearing their dreams, troubling their hearts on their sleeves. 
Joseph sees this and he acts. And he acts. Now, if Joseph had been in the habit of looking upon life through eyes of a cynic, he would have had nothing to do with this. Hey, guys, let me tell you something. I had dreams a number of years ago, and boy, they were special. I was going to be placed in a position that all my brothers and even my parents would come and bow down before me, and, and this was really special. And where am I? I'm in jail. Those dreams that I thought were going to be great were just worthless. So he could have had a cynical attitude by that, but he didn't. Joseph could have ended up being bitter, as he, more than anybody in that prison, was innocent. He, more than anybody there, was thrown into jail and, and, and in a position in life that he didn't deserve. But he didn't. He couldn't because of his character and his integrity. And we've mentioned this a number of weeks. The character of this young man, the, the direction of his heart, was molded and was shaped from his earliest days, born within his soul from his, the words of his grandfather and his great-grandfather to his father and into him about the God that they loved him and that God that they served. And he was prepared for these situations. Joseph never went back on his early convictions. The reality of Joseph's constant consciousness of God, I'm afraid, puts most of us to shame. He was constantly aware, constantly in the presence, understanding that God was there with him. He may have not said it as such, but you can't go from episode to episode to episode and have not one word of question, of grief, of angst towards God because of what's taken place. We read nothing of it. The only things that troubled him was to his brothers. Why'd you do this to me, guys? But nothing towards God. And I think it puts us to shame because I feel, think that most of our day, we feel that we are pretty much on our own. All we feel God's presence here in the Lord's house, Sundays, prayer meetings, sitting down with our Bibles and having our devotions. We have those special times we're going to pray and intercede. We see somebody has a need, we would pray for them and feel God's presence. But outside of that, it's my plans and my direction and my way. And that's why we become so frustrated when it doesn't occur the way I had thought it to occur. But not Joseph. Because he knew the Lord was with him in prison, Joseph chose to serve, and not only serve, he served with care. He served all of these prisoners equally, because that was his nature. That's what Potiphar saw in him in his house, and he knew that they'd be taken care of. But I think, in essence, he went the extra mile to care for and to serve these men. He chose to be an instrument of grace in the same way that in our own lives, we have to understand the needs and the feelings of those around us. We need to understand the hearts and the lives of the people that are there. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2.4, Look not every man on, the thing, on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And some skeptic comes along and he says, Yeah, you're just looking at what other guys have got, you know? No. What he's saying, he says, don't be selfish. Look what God is putting you in a place to see the needs of others. Look for the attitude of compassion and care 
for how you can help with them. Paul writes in Romans 12, Rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. I have a, a, a sympathizing heart. I, I could say, fooey on you guys. You know, you, you put yourself in jail. I'm just going to write out my days in, in the best that I can do. Our sympathy is a powerful witness for God. Through it, we demonstrate the love of God, that people don't have any idea what it is. President Theodore Roosevelt said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's personal experience, isn't it? Somebody who's in a troubled life doesn't care how many Bible verses you know or how often you frequent the Lord's house or how often you, how many hours you spend in devotions. They want to know that you care for them, that there's a door of opportunity that comes to our life that we can experience. Dr. Timothy Toe was a real soul winner from Singapore. He came and taught at Faith Seminary one year. During one of our uh, classes, he was talking about the Golden Triangle, which is up north, the corner of Laos, uh, Myanmar, and Thailand. And at this particular time, it was full of refugees, a uh, tense city. And he says, we as a church here in Singapore need to go up there and and bring the gospel to them. And they had the opportunity to do it, uh, legally and so forth. He says, but we couldn't do it unless we brought food and clothing. He says, there's no way they're going to sit and listen to you preach the gospel unless their bellies are full, unless they're clothed. And he says, if you do it the other way around and just preach and then feed them later on, you know, he says, those words don't mean anything because they don't think you care. They don't think anything about it. Rather than the people that we rub shoulders with, our neighbors or even those we call friends, they're not going to know anything unless we know that they have a need and we can care for them. In some fashion, it doesn't have to be great or grand, but there was a phone call or there was a knock at the door or there was a gift left or something like that. How can I help you? Maybe I can't do anything right now, but, you know, can we pray for you, you know? Can, can I put you in touch with somebody else? It's much easier to say, hey, I've got my own life, my own troubles, I've got my own situations, but, you know, later on, you know, later on. Ralph Wilson was the librarian at Shelton College down in Florida when we were there. A number of times we went to his church, it was over in the mainland, and uh, one time I distinctly remember entering in, and Mr. Wilson, who's the greeter, and he shook our hands, and I said, hey, Mr. Wilson, how you doing? He said, do you really care? <laughs> you know, and, and after I picked myself off the floor, he says, he says, the reason I say that, he says, we use that phrase as a, as a verbal exchange, just communication. How you doing? He said, do you really care? If, if I stopped and told you my situation, would you listen? Would you really listen? Would you do anything about it? Or is it say, hey, nice to meet you. you know, let me go on. You know? And it caused me to think. They don't know that you care unless you show that, unless you bring it to their heart's attention. As Christians, through our empathy, our compassion, showing that we care for others, we can open doors that are otherwise closed to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think when you first heard the gospel, 
Could it have been from somebody who showed that they cared for you, that there was an interest in your life, that there was something special about you? That's such a door. The chapter goes on and talks about the uh, fulfillment of this and uh, prisoners' release or execution, and then uh, talks about how the, uh, the, 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 the cupbearer is told, hey, when you get out, remember me. And he says, oh, yeah, buddy, no problem, you know, and it closes with that. But wait, there's more. Wherefore look ye so sadly today? What if you're the one who's down, dejected, depressed? Not that you see somebody else, but what if you're struggling in that particular situation? I remember there was a time as we were in preparation for mission field and we were traveling churches and we had a little conference among some other missionaries. And we were sitting there and it was just not one of the best of days. And, and um, the one fellow who was talking, uh, who was also actually in the Philippines at that time, uh, says, uh, anybody here uh, kind of down and dejected? And nobody says, I want to raise my hand. He said, I got a book for you. It's Chuck Swindoll's book on, and I, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember. It was a book of encouragement, you know, and it was really sweet, you know, admitting to my heart that that was the necessity of what had to be done in, in the pictures that were there. If you can quickly and briefly, we'll look at it. Go back to your responsive reading, Psalm 42. It's right in the middle of the Bible, next to Psalm 41 and 43. Psalm 42. I'm not sure if you picked it up as we read the responsive reading. But here's someone with a sad face in the psalm. It's a psalm of the soul's conflict. It's a psalm of struggles. Uh, we don't have the time to go through the history of the psalm and the details and so forth, but I want to just hit some of the highlights of the truths that relate to Joseph that provides some truth with him. First, I'll be getting, pointing out some of what the psalmist was feeling. Look at verse 2. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they, meaning the unbelievers around him, continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Where is the evidence? the particular situation isn't important what occurs, but the idea is he's in some place, some situation where God is distant to him. And he says, I, I, I'm so hungry and thirsty for God. The only thing I do is just cry because you are so far away, God. And, and all of those out there are saying, all right, where's your God now? You know, where is he now? And I think of Joseph. And I think of a, a young man who is in these situations and he so earnestly wants to be with dad and family and the worship that they had. And here he is in Potiphar's house, which who knows how that went, um, in prison and how many tears he shed just because he says, I'm so, I'm so lost and hungry for you, Lord. Verse 7, deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts, 
All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Sorrow and affliction are just boom, 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 one after the other on him, pounding him. Water spouts, these little tornadoes in the water, just tossing everything about. You could see his soul. You could just see how the things that were going. And then verses 9 and 10, and as we read them, think again of Joseph. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, where is thy God? You know, the psalmist is obviously feeling this, but didn't Joseph? The figurative sword jabbing into his bones, God, where is the evidence of, of this? You know, here I'm in, and, and I says, Hey, listen, I interpret your dreams. Yes, I'll remember you. No, pro- no problem, you know. And he sit there again and again and week after week, after month after month, and he's not released. Where is the evidence, God, of you being there? One pastor wrote, we all know that there are some mornings when we spring out of bed bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and say, good morning, Lord. And there are other mornings when we only manage to pry open our eyelids, sit dejected on the side of the bed and say, good Lord, it's morning. It's like that at times. Just how we feel and how we struggle. We face another day. Things haven't changed. I'm still in the same situation. I'm still looking at the same troubles that they are there. Lord, where are you? When's this going to be, t- be taken away from me. And I think that's exactly what Joseph felt. Now notice the response the psalmist gives to his detractors, to his soul's own pain. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance and my God. Twice in Psalm 42, once in Psalm 43. The Psalms almost seem to be joined together, you know. Despite all that's there, all I've got is hope. Despite all of the things that are happening, all I can cling to is hope. What did Joseph have? What did he have? He had nothing tangible. He had nothing to to solidify anything other than hope in God. Other than hope in God. I think Joseph clung to these truths that were there. It's a passage that permeates the writing of the apostles. I think especially Paul. Read of Paul in prison. Why? Why the encouragement, Paul? He says, I know because my Lord Jesus is there. He rose from the dead. He redeemed me. He saved me. And I know one day I shall see him. The hope all through scripture, face to face, I'll see him one day, my Jesus. It may not occur here and now. And we may go to our grave, as so many in the world in which we live, as believers, in finding no change whatsoever in the world in which we live. It may be continual of misery. But we hope in God, because he is yet my my salvation. He is yet my hope. I shall praise him for the help of my countenance and my God. Shall we pray?
Our Father, we thank and praise you for, again, the way you moved and shaped this young man's life. And for the fact that the truths were written down, provided for us in the the scriptures that are available to us even as the day that they were written. The truths are, are, are evidence of who you are and what you've done. It gives clarity to the situations that we find ourselves in, in so many situations in our day. And so, Father, emblazon upon our souls the truths that we have hope in you, not a, a questionable hope, not a could be, a maybe, but a solid hope, because the tomb is empty, because my Jesus is risen from the dead. He will come back again, even as he came the first time. He will gather his own unto himself, and the world will understand. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope, not our world. Jesus is our hope. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.